Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. And then there were two, Rishi Sunak, Liz Truss, former Chancellor and current Foreign Secretary. They're going to battle it out over the summer in the contest to become the next leader of the Conservative Party and so the next Prime Minister. So they're going to be hustings, interviews, adverts, promotional videos, embarrassing videos, no doubt, and lots more as they try to win the votes of around 200,000 Conservative Party members, or maybe fewer, a system for electing Prime Ministers, which is not exactly ideal, I have argued. And what about the man they're going to succeed? Boris Johnson has chalked up three years as Prime Minister. He seemed to hint the job is not quite yet done, so could he make a comeback? I'm joined today to discuss all this by two IFG senior fellows who are no doubt watching all this very closely. Kath Haddon leads our minister's work and our work on changes of government. Kath, quiet summer? Uh, yeah, quite a bit to get done before the new government is formed in September, but um, it's all fascinating watching at the moment. It is. And Giles Wilkes has witnessed number 10 under two of Johnson's predecessors, including during the dying days of a caretaker government. Giles, you feel for the people there now? I have no sympathy whatsoever. It's lovely being inside there and they should just be trying to work away on policies for the national interest until the very last minute. Thank you very much. I'm all for clear opinions. And so I'm delighted as well that our guest is someone who really knows how the Conservative Party thinks as well as how Number 10 works. And that's Mo Hussain, former Chief Press Officer at Number 10, a special advisor to Amber Rudd and soon to be joining London-based advisory firm Edelman Global Advisory. Hi, Mo. How are you? Hi, I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me today. A real pleasure. So let's start with this race to be Prime Minister. Mo, do you think it was always going to be these two? I don't think it was always going to be these two. I had uh, higher hopes for perhaps one of the more insurgent candidates. And I think Penny Morden did surprise people with the level of support behind her at MP level and also the fact that she does do very well with members as well. I think there's probably a uh, a belief that it was always going to be these two bigger names just because they have more brand recognition and more the public know them. But as, as you know, this is not how uh, the next leader and therefore the next prime minister is elected. And I do think in some ways uh, it is a bit of a shame that there is more continuity here rather than change. But let's see what platform forms they now put forward. Absolutely. Just out of interest, who is the insurgent you would have liked to see do even better? I, I do think it's Penny, actually. Uh, Kenny Badenoch did do very well, but I do think Penny uh, Morden uh, should have gone a bit further than she did. Really interesting. Kath, what do you make of all this? And do you think this is the right way to pick a prime minister? Yeah, we've been debating that quite a lot. I mean, there are very good arguments, obviously, that, um, you know, both that is this the most democratic in the sense of the whole nation's view of, of what a, a prime minister, who should be prime minister, um, le- leaving it up to Conservative Party members. Obviously, there's a different argument that's, you know, when it comes to political parties, then yes, perhaps it's more democratic in the sense of allowing the membership a say on it rather than just the MPs, which is something a lot of members are are pushing back on at the moment. Another argument that's been emerging is whether or not this produces the right um, kind of person to be a prime minister, because obviously it's a lot about playing first to what MPs are concerned about and then to the membership itself. And is that in the best interests of 
picking somebody who is going to be competent at being prime minister. Obviously, a separate question for the Conservatives is, is there a bit of a difference between what is vote winning amongst the Conservative membership versus vote winning amongst the party as a whole? The problem is I don't see what alternative you've got because anything that involves a sort of more direct approach of you know, wider public being involved, you're, you're heading towards sort of presidentialism. Um, And we've been seeing a big pushback from that anyway. So when you have a parliamentary democracy, perhaps there's more of an argument that MPs ultimately decide. um, But it's it's hard to see anything other than it is up to the party who decide who their leader is. And and that's what denotes being prime minister. So let's just stay on this this interesting um, question of the process just for a moment, because um, we'll get on to the policies in a second, I promise. But um, this question, Giles, what, what do you make of this this process of picking it? Um, I, I've dived into the arguments on this as well, saying, look, aren't the M- MPs more democratic in a way than the members? But as Kath is saying, does that push you away from the spirit of the times, um, which is to include as many people as you can? Uh, I think this current process of um, it has an awkward asymmetry in that you get in because the members support you and then you get thrown out because the MPs don't like you, which can leave you with a real tension. So that's the situation we're in right now. So what if the members keep trying to support people that the MPs find from closer knowledge and working with them and actually seeing how government works? They just keep finding people who are just unsuitable to be prime minister. That's a real tension. So... If, we, if we're to keep having the system where, in effect, they can be thrown out because MPs don't support you, which is our entire parliamentary system, you need to command support in Parliament, it does seem to fit very badly with the idea that the membership has the final say. Maybe they need to work it out in an opposite way, that you get winnowed out first through the membership, but then the final vote goes to the MPs. Mm. I'm just improvising here. But th- the problem here is if you don't have the support of MPs, you're just practically un- unable to govern. And that is... Mm a fact about our system that cannot be removed. Mm. Mo, do you think in practice what is going to happen is that there's just going, the pressure to have a general election after a party leader is selected in this kind of way is just going to grow because people uh, you know, across the country will say, look, we want to have a say. Uh, I'm not so sure about that. I mean, I think there will be an election uh, certainly uh, a lot before the two-year deadline or so, but firstly, it depends on the margin of whoever wins and also the the things that they've set out that they want to deal with uh, as part of their campaign it seems to me clearly cost of living is going to be top of that list and i think rather than getting into another election trying to get uh, another mandate uh, focusing on these issues is going to be probably what they will want to do first and foremost and then they'll probably get to a point where they think right now we need to try and do things uh, that we really wanted to do that may be a bit different to the Boris Johnson platform. So I don't think it will be imminent. Mm-hmm. Kath, I wanted to ask you one particular thing about Penny Morden, which is mm-hmm. the sort of vitriol um, directed at her, her her campaign supporters like David Davis have said they're very shocked by. And she gave a hint as when she didn't get through of saying, look, this has been really very, very bruising. I'm thinking of two columns by uh, one by Matthew Paris calling her a charming fruit loop, among other things, and Dominic Lawson saying Penny Morden is most admired by those who have not worked with her. Uh, and that's simply sound bites from what were long sustained attacks. Matthew Paris did say he'd, he'd regretted he'd, he'd said so much that was unpleasant. What, what mm. do you 
make of that just the normal uh, fair criticism, uh, just the normal um, knockabout of this or um, unfair on her? Uh, I think it did tip over the edge in terms of fairness towards her. You do tend to see questions of competency thrown at, at women far more than you do at men, although there are plenty of men out there where, who whose competency has been questioned, including the outgoing prime minister. Um, I think this you, we've already seen a lot of signs of this particular campaign being, uh, you could call it bruising, but brutal is probably a better word. Um, you know, we're, we're seeing at the moment lots of back, uh, sort of fighting between the Sunak and the Trust campa- campaigns, both of whom are saying that they want to run a clean campaign, but other people on their behalf are having arguments about who argued what over, for example, the North, uh, the uh, national insurance rise and what they did in government and, you know, people briefing about that, the whole sort of collective responsibility is broken down on that. Um, and, and the personal side of things is coming out more and more. So it's less being about policy and it's much more being about, um, you know, whether or not somebody is betraying the values of the Conservative Party or, or something mm-hmm. or other, because there's a lot of positioning going on. So it's. I think it was just, it, it was a combination of, for whatever reason, they decided that was the way to go with with Penny right. Morden. So, 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 you know, fair, fair play in what was a brutal... I don't, I don't think it was fair play. I'm not saying that, but right. I think it was at the particular moment where she was gaining momentum, they went mm. for the jugular. Yeah. Okay. Let's, as I said, go on to the policies, what they're actually saying. Mo, is this all about economics? Well, it certainly feels like that for the time being. Uh, it seems very fashionable to be talking about tax and tax cuts. I think that's partially because that's something that can be done quite quickly. Uh, we have a two-year window or so uh, before the end point for which the next general election can be called. So uh, these uh, candidates do need to show delivery and progress within that time. Um, so it feels like that's the main topic of conversation. And it's a bit of a dividing line. They've both been in Boris Johnson's cabinet uh, or in government for a very long time, uh, and they need to find a way of differentiating between themselves and between uh, the Johnson administration as well. So you will hear a lot about tax cuts, but I think also they'll be thinking about what are the bread and butter issues that matter to their audience at the moment, which are conservative members. So you will probably hear a bit more of a platform on conservative-friendly policy ideas over the coming days, whether that's identity politics, whether that is uh, levelling up uh, or, or other things. So hopefully we do get beyond the economy at some point. Mm. Giles, what do you make of it? What they've said on the economy, which is quite a lot. Um, thus far, I am slightly distressed because um, I, mean, I, I think the growing theme of the autumn is going to be a cost of living crisis and a public services crisis. I don't think it takes great foresight to see those as incredibly big risks. And um, inflation as the backdrop. All of these say, do not try to pump money into the economy through tax cuts. They all say, sit down and work out what you can do to prevent crises amongst households and in the NHS. And they're doing the opposite. So I, I really and, don't... And this is, this is Liz Truss in particular, isn't it, saying, look... Yeah, yeah this is... Yeah, Rishi Sunak is saying, no, don't do that. That's an important caveat. I mean, that's an important caveat, although I don't think he's defending the role of the importance of public services. He did at least 
give them a decent slug of money at the last spending review. What's happened since is inflation has eroded the value of that money and he might have to revisit it if he's the prime minister. But yes, I'm mostly thinking about what most of the other candidates have been saying and made the dominant theme. And I suspect will also, as Rishi Sunak is now the underdog, he's going to be under pressure to move in that direction if he wants to win this thing. So I'm concerned that the theme has been so much. How can we give back tax money to people who don't like being taxed? And it's just not, I don't think it's where the public is who are very worried about public services too. It's certainly not what the economy needs because it would stoke demand in the economy at a time when the Bank of England is trying to pull back demand to control inflation. So I think it's entirely wrong-headed. It's the sort of thing Thatcherites used to attack in their opponents. So I'm frankly confused by it too. Right. And Liz Truss has also said that she will continue levelling up in a, a conservative way. What do you think that means? Well, I mean, I guess, look, this is, there's a fair argument to be had. And I once heard it around the, the um, cabinet table as the Economic Affairs Co- Committee were discussing levelling up back then, which was called like rebalancing the economy. And that is that pumping public money into all these other places doesn't necessarily wean them off their current low productivity. What you can do if you get that wrong is you make it much more attractive to hire a public to work in the public sector rather than work in the private sector you don't make places massively more entrepreneurial by just simply redistributing fiscal resources towards them so there is a right wing um argument that leveling up is not just about fiscal redistribution um so i'd be really interested to know whether she's thought it through more than that because i'm also fairly sure that the regions that are lagging the rest of the uk in productivity aren't doing so because they're more tied up in red tape than anywhere else and they need, there needs to be just a nuanced approach. They need to be good, competent regional authorities that can look at the problems and opportunities in these areas and work at what mixture of policy, including spending, including uh, attracting particular industries, wh- which of those things actually work. And I think it's a pity if they're just looking for a really broad brushstroke and say it's regulation or it's spending. I'm afraid it's just going to be much more complicated. Cass, does Rishi Sunak have an advantage in that he's he's not in government at the moment, having quit as, as Chancellor? And Liz Truss, as she keeps telling us, has a day job as Foreign Secretary. No, and I think actually it's probably more the reverse, or at least Liz Truss is trying to make it so. I mean, one reason is obviously she is heavily going at Rishi Sunak for, well, her supporters again, um, for having resigned and therefore being part of the guilty crew who brought down Boris Johnson, uh, for those amongst the membership who who want to see her as the continuity Johnson in that respect. Um, and also she's using her position to sort of you know, emphasise her delivery. Again, you can pull that apart in terms of, of what she's actually delivered. Um, so I think probably not in in that respect. And it does allow him, I guess, to focus on it a bit more, spend all of his time on it um, and not get drug, dragged off anywhere else. I think the really interesting, um, difficult question is, you know, with what's going on in world affairs, what if there are major issues that actually do require your foreign secretary to be out there on the world stage and not going around the country doing hustings? Uh, the prime minister could obviously they often become their own foreign secretary, so could take on a, a large amount of that. So she's not necessarily needed there, but that's when it starts to become, I think, a massive pressure point. That's really interesting. And you know, August is free of those scheduled uh, big foreign events, and but yet not, it's not at all happen. free yeah. of events. Um, Mo, what do you think is going to shape this 
contest. Uh, we've been hearing a lot about how lots of it is about economics, and yet is that really going to resonate with the the members? I think uh, on one level it will. Uh, people will like hearing about tax cuts, and they will like hearing that perhaps the manifesto from 2019 won't be broken after all if certain decisions uh, are being made. But uh, people also want the details. So if you're promising somebody tax cuts and you're also promising them more investment and better public services, how is this going to be paid for? I think this will be one of the bigger debates around how does this coalition, this very broad support base the Conservative Party has had since 2019, how does that keep together when you have some people who do want to see levelling up, they do want to see more investment in their parts of the country, and you have other people who want to go back to small state conservatism who probably feel that this government uh, was too interventionist and too activist in the economy and in people's lives. So balancing those two, I think, is going to be uh, quite challenging. Then I think also just how the two uh, protagonists actually present themselves. We've had some debates. Uh, I would say probably Rishi Sunak did a bit better than Liz Truss in what we've seen so far. But is it the case the more somebody sees of somebody, the less they actually uh, want them in the top job? So I think the presentation and the optics of, of how they come across will be important as well. Um, Bronwyn, and on this, um, I mean, it's one of these, again, extraordinary things about this kind of campaign, because it's not even like a general election campaign where, in theory, even the opposition party have time to work through their policies. You've got small groups of people, not, you know, not the civil service, around each of the candidates who are developing these policies. And it's a really tricky time for the civil service watching all of that watching sort of what are usually end up being, you know, you'll have broad brush, large sort of policy claims that you'll do, and then you'll work out very specific individual policies because you don't have the capacity to be able to work them through in any great depth. But it, it can be a lot of hostages to fortune that you're developing. And and as I say, the civil service will be watching it and thinking, well, how are we, how are we going to do these and what do they actually mean in practice? So there is a risk actually of them giving more detail, though I completely agree with Mo that obviously you need to be able to challenge them on what does that actually mean in practice. Really interesting. Giles, who do you think Labour would want to see emerge from this? I think the consensus from the polling is that they'd find it easier to attack Liz Truss as Continuity Johnson. And also she has in the time come across as sort of insensitive and slightly robotic. Um, whereas Rishi was at one point not only the most popular politician with Conservative members, but with the country. And he, he got immediate name recognition. Now, obviously, the sheen came off him um, in March. But I think um, she has never been as popular with the public as he is. I think, um, I mean, they're concerned... Just, that- just on that point, that he, he, the sheen came off it partly because the voters were reminded of how wealthy he was and his wife was yeah. and the row about his wife, non-dom status and so on. Do you think that just still hangs in there over him? I, I think people would have become aware of that, which is a t- isn't a great look when you're a cost, in a cost of living crisis. But it was several things seemed to all hit at once. The spring statement went down pretty poorly. It wasn't seen as an adequate response to the soaring energy bills. There was the issue about the non-DOM status and the green card. Um, but there was also him being fined for the COVID um, breaching breaches, which was devastating for him. I think he was personally very disappointed in that. And all of this sort of came together and sort of knocked him off at the same time as he and the Prime Minister clearly started falling out quite badly on the subject of tax rises. So all of these sort of hit Rishi. But I think um, 
I think trust is just never never polled particularly strongly with the public, and would need a really mm. really good first few months. Otherwise, I suspect Labour would be pretty happy with her. That's that's um, that rings true, I must say. So, um, Mo, what do you think will happen? Well, I think if things uh, continue the way they are in terms of member sentiment and polling, we are probably looking at a Liz Truss uh, premiership uh, just because you know, the members are not the general public uh, and uh, they do really quite like her. I mean, it doesn't mean it's not to play for. There are still uh, a few weeks where we will hear a bit more and uh, Rishi could turn things around. I mean, I would also say that there's a bit of mythology around members and who they are and how they think. Uh, they're not a homogenous group and equally you still want somebody who can win an election because what's the point of being promised all these tax cuts and other policies if you're not going to be in gov- government to actually deliver them? So members will have an eye on who is going to win the next election rather than who do they just want as the prime minister. Yeah, I think, again, that puts it very well. Kath? I, I mean, her career with all of that, it sounds like it's going to be trust, um, you know, at the moment. But it, there is... You often see in these things some kind of defining moment and it's not necessarily in the early stages. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, obviously with Andrea Leadsom, it was the campaign imploding and then her withdrawing. Uh, so everyone will be wondering what that is. And I don't think the journalists have yet got started. We'll see what the Sunday papers turn up this week, but they will be scrutinising much more, whether it's skeletons in the closet or whether it's, um, you know, interrogating some of the policy suggestions coming out thus far so that kind of scrutiny you know it's very uncomfortable for um for the candidates i'm sure but it is a really important test uh not only in terms of public scrutiny but also a test for the candidates as to how well they can do on the campaign front and that is obviously always important to a political party and giles quickly prediction my prediction of what happens um there was it's very hard to see the membership changing their minds radically, which they'd have to if, if the polling is um, is correct and giving Rishi Sunak a win because they know both of these candidates relatively well. They've both in their different ways been sort of campaigning for their public image amongst conservative members and voters for a couple of years. And so the, the big hope for Rishi Sunak is they have these very public debates and his presumed higher quality comes across really strongly and the voting system which enables conservative members to change their vote and actually vote electronically right up to the end yeah. might favor him in that way but it would take a it would take a real sort of clegmania moment where suddenly they think my goodness he's so much better than everybody else and that hasn't happened in party membership elections for a long while they tend to be quite settled in their views and and stick with it. And if they are settled, then it's going to be a trust government from September the 5th onwards. Yeah. All right, let's switch our attention a bit more briefly to the man that they're going to replace, Boris Johnson, who this week clocked up three years as Prime Minister. Kath, um, what what did you make of his, his last Prime Minister's questions? Uh, yeah, it was, it was a bit of a sort of mixed bag of one, wasn't it? I mean, it was the classic uh, Johnson versus Starmer, um, unedifying, uh, you know, combination of sort of jo- jokes and attacks. Um, 
I, th- I mean, everyone was talking about the sort of clapping afterwards and whether or not that was, you know, inappropriate that you don't clap or, you know, inappropriate that you do clap. Um, I think it's just where we are at the moment with it all. So I, none of it particularly surprised me. I, I mean, a lot of people are pointing to put down a motion this week, sort of, you know, pointing to all of his aim, um, his achievements. And uh, I'm, I'm not sure that that's particularly gone down well uh, with his own party, let alone with the sort of wider world and particularly the the Twitterverse. Um, but yeah, it's been a, a kind of strange end. I mean, I think we'll just be seeing a lot less of him over the course of the summer. It's lots of discussion about zombie versus caretaker government that I'm sure we can discuss. But um, from his point of view, I think it's just he wants to enjoy the the last sort of benefits of being in the top job. Um uh, but I'll, we'll wait and see whether or not any sort of unusual final Johnson flurries are turned up. Mo, what do you, you look back at this three years, right? Three extraordinary years. How do you begin to kind of rate it? Well, I mean, I think, you know, starting off with this uh, election victory that he had, uh, which reached parts of the country that would never have even thought of voting Conservative before. Did, did mean a good start. And of course, there was the Brexit context. And of course, you know, Corbyn was leading the opposition, which all played uh, not a small part, I think, in that victory as well. But I'm afraid since then, it's just been a, a bit of a tale of squandering that majority and the potential of what the government could actually have done. I mean, identifying things like the levelling up agenda, I think, have been really, really important. It's the kind of thing that people talk about and you can call it different things, but actually trying to move beyond just a slogan and put some real markers down, uh, which I, I know the government, I think, could have done more and moved faster on, but I think that was a positive. Things like having a very diverse cabinet, I think, is really, really important for representation. But then you get to all these self-inflicted wounds that we've right, seen. Well, you uh, might add two more on the positive ledger. I mean, he, he would say, well, well, he delivered the vaccine. He rode to Ukraine's side sooner than many leaders. Yeah. And he would say he got Brexit done. Yes, and we've heard a lot of that. I mean, it's a lot of kind of greatest hits of the Johnson administration that we've heard. <laughs> all, yes. of, all of those are you know, big and they are important things. But I think the slight problem is for the last six to nine months or so, we've just been hearing a lot of backward looking stuff rather than what is the forward looking agenda? What is the government going to do and is doing at the moment? I think that is what part of the disconnect has been because actually uh, the the latest stuff has been these missteps and these self-inflicted wounds. And to me, it's just shown the difference between being a very, very good campaigner and being able to rile up people and the difference between that and actually then the business of governing, which is a whole other task. Mm. Mm. Giles, a verdict? My verdict, I think there's a fascinating irony at the heart of the Johnson administration, which is as he leaves and this new regime of either trust or Senate comes in, it's going to be a shift to the right in economic terms. And it's going to be a shift in policy terms in a more unpopular and, in my view, inappropriate direction, given the challenges facing the country. So from that point of view, there might be quite a lot of columns saying, oh, you're going to miss Johnson now because he actually believed in supporting public services and infrastructure spending and net zero and a lot of these things that a lot of us think are perfectly good, valid aims that, that he was going after with energy. But the reason we all thought he had to go was his style of governing, the obfuscation and mendacity and the populism, meaning that it, which seemed to spe- 
set a really bad example to some of his successors or would-be successors and some really unpleasant populist policies like the Rwanda policy, in my view. So the paradox is we think, you know, he should go, but it might actually lead to policy being much more uncomfortable for a lot of us. And it just tells you how bad his governing style must have been that a policy set that might have been in broadly the right space, albeit including quite a lot of difficult contradictions, Um, is going to be missed. And yet we still think he definitely ought to go. This is the wrong way to be running a government. So that so that's my verdict on Johnson. I don't think it was a particularly difficult set of policy ideas to come at. But it's the one that I think the country would have appre- appreciated a lot more than the, the sort of that sat- Thatcherism that we're going to be facing in the difficult months ahead. Um, so, so, yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be difficult. And yet we're going to be blaming him for it. Mm. We could do a whole podcast on what Thatcherism means now. Mm. It is a long, a long time ago. Kath, as, as a historian, as our historian, how do you think history will remember Johnson? Yeah, it's a kind of it's going to be a really difficult one. I mean, let's be honest; it's going to partly depend on what comes next, because as we have seen with Theresa May, there is a lot of revisionism that then comes on the basis of who succeeds and how that looks, and you know the way in which. May is presented sometimes as as being the sort of careful, cautious and um, competent prime minister. Actually, a lot of her premiership, there were people, you know, including the Institute for Government, talking about the frustration of, of um, uh, incompetency, at least with, with sort of managing the party, managing under a minority government, all of these sorts of things. Um, but it's just the personality difference between the two of them. So I do think... Yes, if it is Liz Truss, um, a lot of her premiership, however long that lasts, um, is going to be juxtaposed against Boris Johnson. And I think competency is going to be a big issue that defines then both of their premierships because this has, Johnson has massively squandered what was an incredible position to find themselves in in 2019, even with you know the pandemic and the way in which that hit everything sideways. Um, you know, that was uh, that and Ukraine, these are moments to sort of show leadership, statesmanship, et cetera, et cetera. Of course, they send you off course, but um, there was still no defining vision that sort of kept them going through. And and despite all the talk of delivery, there wasn't a focus on delivery that really worked for them. And Mo, I'd love your view on something. The last two prime ministers have been in for three years or thereabouts. The next one could um, have an even shorter tenure. What is this down to? Is it um, the divisions in the party, say, over Brexit, the sheer characters, as with Johnson, um, um, you know, not using this 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 fantastic majority or squandering it, um, just an accident of history and the way it's panned out. I do think uh, the Brexit point uh, is a really relevant one here because that has. Uh, ultimately led to the downfall of several prime ministers. But I think it's also when you do have such a big majority, as is the case under this prime minister, then you do have uh, a range of different views and you have people who tend to not really agree with each other on very much. And part of your job as prime minister, a big part of it, I'm afraid, is party management and managing your MPs. And it just feels like we haven't seen very much of that. I think there's a bit of a, we're in number 10 now, 
we can get on with it and we'll go back to the MPs when we need them to do something rather than that constant reassurance and bringing them in, making them feel that they're involved in things. We've seen a lot of MPs being marched up the hill to do something they're not comfortable with or going to defend something they don't really believe in. And that has a cost uh, in terms of people then getting a bit fed up and wanting a change. So I think that is probably what's at play here uh, beyond the wider geopolitics as well, which also play a part. Do you think there's any scenario in which he returns? He has sort of given a hint about that. He doesn't think it's all over. Hasta la vista. Absolutely. Baby. He said, yes. Hasta la vista. Baby. Thank you. Um, Mo, what do you reckon? Well, never say never with this uh, Prime Minister at all. I think he had to, uh, you know, this PMQs felt a bit flat. He had to go out with a bang. Um, I think we will actually see a bit more of him in the summer because one thing he can do is uh, the international work and more leadership, which he has shown on Ukraine and looking ahead at keeping that coalition going. Uh, But what he does next, let's wait and see. But I wouldn't rule out some kind of comeback uh, in the kind of midterm future can i put my stick my neck out and say we should say never i think never is the result here because i I remember being told by clearly what was a very complacent colleague in the policy unit in 2017 or 18 the mps really don't like johnson they won't put him into the last two because they know he'll win Um, and then the desperation of 2019 turned that around and made that a bad prediction those circumstances are not going to repeat themselves and we can't imagine another world in, people, in which people say, oh, if only we could get Johnson back, we'll get it back into the 40s in the polling. He's been tried out and he's made so many enemies amongst the MPs. So many of them are on the record saying that they don't want Boris Johnson to be the prime minister. The idea that they, he turns around and goes back through that process and becomes the prime minister again, I think is just so incredibly unlikely. And I think the public have found him out. He was relatively new to a lot of people outside of the London bubble in 2019 and seemed like a breath of fresh air. He's anything but a breath of fresh air anymore. So I think there's no chance for him returning. He'll cause a lot of trouble, a bit like a sort of watered down version of what Trump is doing over there in the United States. But I Mm. cannot see him returning. And he might even lose his seat in October. We don't have to spend ages on what Boris Johnson's future is, but what what does an ex-Prime Minister do? Well, I mean, in his case, a lot of it is going to be um, earning money. And there's been lots of talk about uh, the financial problems he's found himself in, in in number 10 and the impact of those on on various of these scandals um, that have come up through his premiership. And, you know, that is a big deal. They, it's 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 not even just, oh, they get accustomed to the life of, of number 10 and, and all it all its sparkles it is also you get used to going around meeting world leaders you know big important people and you sort of want to continue to be able to do that so um i think he will find himself you know turning more and more to the world stage in whatever sense that is they always end up going off and doing speeches i'm sure he will be writing his own premiership up um taking a churchill leaf out of leaf out of Churchill's book. Um, And I suspect, I agree with Giles, I think as soon as he starts finding himself in a different world and getting distracted by that, um, you know, all of these kind of, oh, maybe they'd want me back feelings will just dissipate and he'll he'll look for something else instead. Yeah, maybe indeed in another country. But we'll have to see how that all goes. Well, 
we need to wrap it up there. That is it for another episode of Inside Briefing. So my great thanks to Kath Haddon, Giles Wilkes, and especially to Mo Hussain. And thank you all for listening at home. You can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify, all major platforms. We always like to get your reviews. Please do also visit our website at instituteforgovernment.org.uk. Parliament has risen for recess, but it's going to be a very lively summer. Except I should say that I'm soon going to be moving on to be director of Chatham House. And when I said at the beginning there are just two left, I had actually flashing through my mind I could have been referring to my hosting of these podcasts. So this is my penultimate one. Next week will be my last where we'll try for some sort of jamboree end of term flavor. But Inside Briefing will, of course, carry on and it will do justice to the complexity and the liveliness of all these things that we are living through. See you next time. Mm -hmm.